Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Are y'all glad that uh, God doesn't fail? If God failed, we'd be in a pile of trouble. But he doesn't fail. I think it was the first song that we sang that said, even when I stumble, even when I fall. And uh, it's an interesting line. Still your love is, is sure. If you're here this morning and you're kind of connecting the songs that we sang and you're like, yeah, some of that wind and rain in my life was self-imposed. Anybody ever been there, done that? You know, it, it wasn't what's happening at the, the job or it's not cancer or a family crisis, just some self-imposed wind and rain. We can do that to ourselves. You know that, right? Um, if you're here this morning, I, I take that as evidence that, that God is doing something in your heart and in your life. And, and if he saved you, uh, he did so in spite of you. He didn't save you because of you. He didn't save you because you were good enough to earn or deserve his salvation, right? And so if you're here this morning, praise God, it, if he's drawing you back into fellowship, then don't neglect that. Don't, don't just sit and check a box. Be attentive, be attuned to the God who is bigger than your mess and who will deliver you in spite of you and whatever trial or circumstance you face. That was, that was for free. That wasn't the sermon. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, so you can Philippians with me in your Bibles, haha, <laughs> to chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. The theme of this entire series is coming from chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Paul, Paul wants to live, and, he, and he's got a, a purpose and a mission in living that can be summarized in one word, Christ. Who's Christ? Christ is the anointed King of the Father, King Jesus. To live is King Jesus. To live in His way, to live out His plan. It's the, it's the theme that sort of unifies the whole letter. Why, why would the church be united? Why would the church love? Why would the church endure adversity? Because uh, to live is Christ. To live is to put Jesus on display. It's to live for the good of his church and the progress of his gospel, his good news, deep into our own lives and then out into the world. And two weeks ago, we covered Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2, and last week we covered uh, verses 3 through 8, which is really sort of the first half of Paul's reporting of his prayers for the Philippians. And in verses 3 through 8, we saw the prayers of Paul's thanksgiving for them. And today we're going to consider the second half of his prayer report in verses 9 through 11. Verses 3 through 8 was one sentence in the Greek, 
And verses 9 through 11 are the second sentence in the Greek. So he's got a, a report that kind of divides into two sentences. And last week we saw Paul introduce these ideas of partnership in the gospel and suffering for the sake of the gospel along with his, his deep affection for the church. And today we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 his request to God for the Philippians. So first, God, I thank you for the Philippians. And now to the Philippians, here's what I've been praying about for you. Here, here are the petitions or the requests that I've been bringing to God on your behalf. Now, I think this is brilliant on Paul's part, right? Because in the letter, he's going to tell them to do some stuff. But before Paul tells them to do some stuff, he starts out with, let me tell you what I've been asking God to do in you, right? Because the stuff that he wants Philippi to do, they can't do unless God does it in them. And, and have you ever just told somebody you're praying for them? I've heard some people, well, don't tell anybody you're praying for them because of the, the text in the gospel about praying in your closet and being private. And that, that's missing the point and the context. Man, I love to pray for people and tell them, man, here's what I'm praying for God to do in your life. And that's what Paul does here with the church at Philippi. Before he says, here's what you need to do, he says, here's what I've been praying God will do in you. And I submit to you, church, the things that we see Paul praying for the church at Philippi are things that we need to be praying for him to do in North Roanoke. So let's consider the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 9, and we'll, we'll continue through verse 11. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Like last week in verses 3 through 8, he's reporting to the Philippians about his praying. All the ideas in this sentence are connected. And before we dive deep into the prayer report, I want you to notice its overall movement. Moises Silva, a commentator, says it builds like a stylistic crescendo. Does everybody know what a crescendo is? You took music, you had a good music teacher in elementary school, right? It starts kind of quiet and then it builds. Did I get that right, Paul? And then it's kind of big on, on the far end. That's kind of the way this verse works. He begins with a request for ever-increasing love in the church that ends with the glory and the praise of God. And, and I think this is important for us to get. Sometimes we think what we're doing here is so far from eternity, so disconnected from the return of Christ that we, we don't make it connected at all. But Paul says the love that you have for one another in the church connects to the everlasting glory of God. Reflecting and pursuing God's love isn't just a nice idea, it's God's idea, and it directly relates to eternity. It relates to, relates to our readiness to stand before God on the day of Christ and to God being glorified for what he's done. When, when I have conversations with uh, your youth pastor, Ethan Smith, um, sometimes, uh, I'm going to pick on the Hokies again this morning, trying to think of a way to illustrate this. Sometimes he'll come to me and say, man, tech looked pretty bad yesterday. And I'll say, bad? They are the dumpster fire of 
college football right now. Like, there's not a team worse than them in the nation right now. And he'll say something like, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> he, he, he catches me with that phrase all the time, that escalated quickly. But Paul's prayer escalates quickly. It goes from love in one local church to the glory of God for all eternity. And sometimes it's easy for us to forget the big picture, but Paul paints a big picture in these three verses. And what we see first is that if we want to glorify God and be ready for Jesus' return, we've got to see first, verse 9, that God wants us to continually grow in love, knowledge, and discernment. God wants us to continually grow in love, knowledge, and discernment. Paul resumes his prayer report with the word and, verse 9. It just flows right out of thanksgiving to God, and here's what I pray for you. And he prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, it's important for us to note that Paul's not lecturing them about a lack of love. He's not saying that you aren't loving. He's saying, I want your love to grow, to abound, to, to keep deepening, to, to multiply. What he's fearful of is that they would take love for granted, that they would assume that they've attained the heights of love and that there's no more love to be had. And then when they forget about love, that they would allow verse uh, three of chapter two, selfish ambition or conceit to end up robbing them of love. You see, to assume love is to put ourselves in a dangerous position where love will be cooled. So Paul prays that love would keep growing. Marita and Chan say this love should not be static, it should keep growing. This, this idea of growth in love relates to something that the Bible calls sanctification. Becoming more and more and more like the Jesus who has saved us as we have opportunities to confront our flesh and in the power of the Holy Spirit pursue the glory and the way of Christ. So we must not assume love or take it for granted. Instead, Paul shows us that we should ask God to make our love to abound, or to be overflowing, or in excess, or in super abundance. There's a lot of things that you don't want in excess, that you don't want an abundance of, but we want in our church a super abundance of love. In sports, if a team has a commanding lead, it's generally frowned upon to run up the score and unnecessarily trounce your opponent, but love's not like that. You'll never have too much love. To grow in Christ includes growing in love, and that means facing things, church, that will require your love to grow, right? Oh, I never thought I'd have to love somebody through that. I never thought I'd have to love someone in spite of that attitude or that thing that disappointed me. It's going to take more love than I had yesterday to love through this. See, a lot of believers, we just want to put a line on our love. I'll love you up to this point. I'll love you through that, but not through that. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't love us that way? If there was a line on Jesus' love for you, you'd be lost and spend eternity forever in hell. Where's your line? May God grow it. 
Such overflowing and increasing love is needed in every church, by the way. It's not just the church at Philippi that Paul prays, for, prays this for. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. In Ephesians 5.2, he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, later in, in the next chapter, he's going to say, Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love. The word love here is the word agape. It's a selfless love. It's a sacrificial love. Warnock writes this, it's a sober kind of love. Love in the sense of placing a high value on a person or a thing. Fee adds that this sort of love expresses itself in actively seeking the benefit of the one so loved. To love is to seek the benefit of someone else. Paul wants the entire church to be characterized by overflowing and selfless love. Now what's interesting is Paul doesn't specify here who, who's, who's supposed to be loved. Love, love for whom? Is it love for God? Is it love for one another? Or is it love for the lost? And in context... And because of what he's going to say at the end of verse 9 and into chapter 10, because he's going to call for discernment in the practical application of love, he's likely focused on our love for one another. And yet, is it not true we can't love for one another in the way that Paul wants us to love unless we love God? You can't love as you ought to love unless you love God who first loved you and he's filling you with this supernatural capacity to love. And and is it not also true that the world will know we are disciples by our love? And so Paul calls them specifically to love one another, but that's going to require that they love God, and it's going to result in the world seeing what Jesus said, all people will know that you are disciple, my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So Paul prays, that a selfless, self-sacrificing love, a love like the love of Jesus who died for us while we were still yet sinners would grow and overflow in the church. And the love that he calls for is not mere emotion or sentimentality, right? It's not just a feeling. If you wait to feel like loving, you might never, you might never get around to loving. This is true in your marriage, it's true in your parenting, it's true in your workplace. Man, I just don't feel it today. Well, so often right behavior precedes right feeling. If you wait to feel it, good luck with that, especially if you get in a bad season. We're, we're not called to feel like loving, we're called to love. We're called to do what Jesus did. I suspect in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus wasn't the whole time feeling it. But he did it. Paul prays not only for love, but for love that comes with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge is, is a relational knowledge. It's not just knowing facts about God. It's knowing God and belonging to Him relationally. To love as God desires. We've got to know and belong to God who is both truth and love. This sort of love is a, a Christ-honoring, biblically-informed love. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Love that discards truth or sets aside truth for the sake of love is not love at all. 
we need to know that in the world that we're functioning in today. God has saved the people to be holy and to be set apart for him, which means there's actions and behaviors that are not acceptable to God. And if we throw away the standard, we've thrown away love. Love that discards truth for the sake of love is not love at all. To affirm or embrace or endorse something that God's Son died to forgive is not loving, it's lying to yourself and to others. So the church is called to increase in love, but it's got to be wedded to knowledge. In other words, we're not called to grow merely in niceness or in friendliness or in cuteness, or in sentimentality, but in selfless love, which must be anchored in knowing God. And along with knowledge, we also need discernment or moral insight. This word discernment occurs only here in Paul's letters. It's, he's talking about practical insights that inform choices and conduct based on our knowledge of God. Have you ever encountered this in your relationship with someone? Like, you love them, but how best can I love them in this moment? At any given moment, there might be a range of ways to express love, and Paul's desire is for insight and clarity from the Spirit into the way that would bring the most blessing to the one we are loving and that would most appropriately reflect the character of Christ. Paul is praying for this for the entire church. And for us to, to behave in this way, it takes growth in love, growth in the knowledge of God, and growth in discernment or in wisdom and attentiveness to the Spirit. Marita and Chan say this, the bottom line is this, we need a knowledge of Christ and His Word. We need a discerning heart and mind and life in our relationships. We love not by leading with our preferences, but with God's Word and our union with Him. A union so strong that it leads us to be the hands and the feet and the mouths for Jesus as we build one another up in love. So let me ask us, church, as we apply Paul's prayer to our lives, here's some, here's some questions to ask of ourselves. What would it look like for God to answer Paul's prayer among us? Who, who are you not loving like this in the body? What would it look like for you to love your spouse or your church or your kids or your coworkers or your enemies or your 3D group leader or your neighbor with love and knowledge and all discernment. Is there someone here this morning or maybe someone not here this morning that you need to, to love selflessly? And doing so, it might hurt, it might cost you in some way, you might have to give something up or let something go compared to what Christ gave up for you. Does it really cost anything at all? It won't cost you nearly as much as what it cost Jesus to love you. May God grant us in this fellowship such abounding love and knowledge, and discernment. But why? Why would we love in this way? That brings us to verse 10 and 11. Paul first tells us what he prays, and now he's going to tell us why he prays this, okay? 
in verses 10 and the, the first part of 11. When love, knowledge, and discernment grow, we will know and do what is right in our relationships and be ready for Jesus' return. Why would we pray this way? Those are the reasons. We will know what to do in our relationships and we will be ready for the return of Christ. Verse 10 begins with the words, so that. These words indicate Paul is going to give us the reason. Here's what I pray, and I pray this, so that. And what he prays, or the reason that he prays for abounding love and knowledge and discernment is what? So that we may approve what is excellent. The word approve means to test or examine something for authenticity. They would examine precious metals and make sure that they were legit. They would examine currency and make sure that it was legit. And God, Paul, prays that we would, we would abound with all love and knowledge and discernment. Why? So that we would examine things and that we would test things and choose that which is excellent or best. We would evaluate the options before us and we would pick the best. We need love for God and one another so we can sort through personalities and differences and preferences and align ourselves with that which is excellent or best. That which pertains, what does it mean to be best? What is the best? Church, what's the best? The glory of Christ. The growth of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel, the, the demonstration of the power of God in the life of a believer and in your marriage and in your parenting, the, these things are best. We don't, we, we're not confused about what the best is, right? The best is, is what God came down to secure and, and then he put us together as a people to advance. And so when we're weighing what it looks like to love in any given moment, what's going to lead to the most promotion and advancing and living out of the gospel life? That's what's best. Without love rooted in knowledge and discernment, we are tempted to neglect or ignore or forget the gospel. A church can very quickly become a country club that's more concerned with the color of the carpet than the progress of the gospel. A church can very quickly become enamored with what's going on outside the walls of the church, in the world, and in politics, and bring that into the pew rather than to remain lockstep, riveted, and focused on the glory of Christ made manifest in the church and in the proclamation of the gospel we got to love one another more than we love our favorite candidate. Is this, is this on? This is our priority. We love one another because King Jesus brought us together by first loving us to proclaim His glory and His mission to the ends of the earth. We've got to love Him and love one another so that we would approve what is best and then do what is best rather than fracturing and fussing over lesser important things. You see, church, where there is God-given love for God, there will be God-given love for one another. And it is that church that will be positioned to approve and do what is best, even when it's difficult, as we navigate this course together. Here's Paul's point. Right love, 
rooted in knowledge of God will lead to right priorities and right action consistent with those priorities. Right love and right knowledge clarify that Christ and His kingdom and His commands are most important. And love rooted in knowledge and discernment will lead us to lay down our history and our pride and our programs and our assumptions and our attitudes and our preferences to do what is best. To do what is most glorifying to King Jesus who laid down his life for us and to empower us to obey his word and pursue his mission until Christ returns. And when when these things are happening in the church, there's yet another result. Do you see it? In the last part of verse 10, growing in love, love that is accompanied by knowledge and discernment, first leads us to approve and do what is best, and secondly, look what, it, what else it leads to. It leads us to approach eternity with confidence. It leads us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. Now, pure here doesn't mean sinless, doesn't mean you never sinned. It rather means to be of unmixed motives in your love. Do you know you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons? You can have mixed motives. You can be trying to impress someone else, right? Pure here means I'm loving because I love you. I'm loving you because God loved me and I want the best for you, full stop. There's no posturing, There's no angling, there's no agenda, there's no quid pro quo, there's no I scratched your back, now you scratch mine. I just love you. You can't do anything else for me, it doesn't matter. I want to show you the love of God. That's what purity and love is. We need selfless love, church, to put to death As Marita writes, inner sins of envy and pride and jealousy and self-ambition and entitlement and complaining and arguing. Pure in the day of Christ Jesus. I could stop right there in the sermon. We live in a world that's got love so messed up. It's nothing like the love of Jesus. There's marriages that need a restoration of this kind of selfless love. We just just stop right there. If you you would apply yourself to a pure love in your marriage, watch what God will do. Not when she finally gets it together, then I'll love her. Not when he finally gets it together, then I'll I'll love him. I'm going to lay down my life for my bride, like Christ. Which, by the way, is what Ephesians 5 says. I'm going to treasure her like Jesus treasured the church. How did he do that? He died for her. Husbands, will you die for your wife? And husbands are the head of the home. Right? I could, I could step on wives' toes too, and this isn't in the notes, but I, I just feel like I need to go there for a second. We had a, we had a, a, a launch of, not a launch, we, we did something back in the spring, but we're, we're stepping toward trying to see men's ministry uh, grow a bit in 2024, and we're going to work together through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Some of you men never learned what it was to be a godly man. We're asking you to come four times next year 
and we're going to walk through what the Bible says about being a godly man. Be there. It's your job to lead your wife and to lead your home. You are the leader. If your marriage is falling apart, it's your job to save it. It's your job to step up and do the first thing. She shouldn't have to lead you to counseling. She shouldn't have to drag you to whatever's needed. If there's a problem, you say, well, it's really not that bad. If your wife says there's a problem in your marriage, there's a problem in your marriage. Period. Full stop. And some of you guys need to step up and see life for what it is and learn to love like Jesus loved. And the first place you demonstrate that is in your home. That's not Paul's primary point, by the way. He's talking to the whole church. But if you're satisfied to be a knucklehead in your house, good luck loving like Jesus in the church. Go apply it in your house. And do it now. You're getting older. Time is flying by. Your kids are are wasting away as you flounder around acting like it's going to be fine and it's not. God will revive our church. He'll revive this valley when men be men in their homes. Pure. That's where we were. And blameless. Blameless here is not the typical word that refers to, to moral purity or, or blamelessness. This, in this case, the word blameless means not causing someone to stumble, not giving offense. If, if pure means to have sincere motives, blameless means not being a bully in the process. All right? You can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and you can also do the right things in the wrong way. Love does both. It does the right things in the right way. Love is, is wedded, love that is wedded to knowledge and discernment leads us to pursue the best course of action out of genuine love for Christ and care for His people. And why do we do this? Because we're focused on eternity. We're compelled by the love that we have for Christ and his church that will one day culminate with the day of Christ, verse 10. This is the end of history as we know it and the beginning of eternity in his new creation. This is the day that Jesus returns to judge. It is not our good works that save us. It is Jesus who saves us. And yet he has saved us in love for love, a a love that leads us to approve and do what is best from a pure heart and with regard for others. Living in this way will bring confidence to us as we approach the day of Christ. If we belong to Jesus, we know that our King is returning and we need to be ready when He returns, not frittering away our lives, but pursuing His best in love. And to live this way, we need the Spirit. 
We need the Spirit who unites us with Jesus. Look at verse 11. What does He do? Filling us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. This is an interesting phrase. It can be interpreted in a variety of ways, but it is the fruit of righteousness. The fruit which consists of righteousness. What's being spoken of here is not our positional righteousness. That's what the theologians call it. Positional righteousness is when you believe in Jesus, in the moment that you believe in Jesus, all the righteousness that Jesus has is credited to your account. That's good news, isn't it? This morning, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you hear the gospel and that God sent His Son to take your place and you trust in Jesus in a moment, all the righteousness you will ever need to be approved before a holy God will be given to you through Jesus, just like that, by faith. That's the gospel. But that's not the righteousness that's being spoken of here. The righteousness that's being spoken of here is the righteousness that comes to your life once that reality is true of you, once you trust in Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. And that's what's going on here. If you've actually been changed at the root of your life, you're going to begin to demonstrate that in the way that you live. The fruit which is righteousness that comes by way of our union with Christ. This is a, a living in a way that reflects the righteousness of Jesus. It results in living and loving like Jesus even when we're tested. It, it results in giving ourselves up for the good of our church. It's denying ourselves and taking our cross up for the glory of God. Where there is a resolve to love like Jesus, it's going to take sacrifice, which means you're going to need also what? Joy from Jesus. You're going to need peace from Jesus. You're going to need patience from Jesus. You're going to need kindness from Jesus to know not only the right thing to do, but the right way to do it. You're going to need gentleness from Jesus. Probably should have been more gentle talking to husbands a few moments ago. I apologize. You're going to need self-control from Jesus. To love like Jesus in the fire. When it doesn't go as you anticipated. When selfless love and knowledge of God and discernment overflow, we will pursue what is best with pure motives and the proper approach. And this will give us confidence for the coming of King Jesus. If you're not excited for Jesus to come back, maybe you're not living this way. Man, I, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. And the more I read the news and look at the world, I'm like, Jesus, is there something else you're waiting on? What on the earth could it be? And I can't wait for Jesus to come back. If, you're, if you don't have that confidence, maybe you aren't in Christ or maybe you're not loving like Christ. You want to have confidence in the, for the day of Christ Jesus, love like Jesus. But we're not quite done. There's one more reason that Paul prays for us to have love accompanied by knowledge and discernment that will abound more and more. And it is this. At the end of verse 11, do you see it? When we, when we love and when we have knowledge 
and discernment, when love, knowledge, and discernment grow in the church, God is glorified. There, there's the end game. There's the ultimate purpose. Here at the end of verse 11, we, we see Paul's prayer for a ever abounding and increasing love and knowledge and discernment culminates in the glory of God. Paul's prayer is, is that all this would happen so that our lives would reflect the glory of God and that they would redound to the glory and the praise of God. Marita and Chan say this, there's no higher purpose in life than to glorify God. You don't glorify God to do something else. The end of it all is the glory of God. Paul doesn't pray for love leading to righteous lives to make much of the Philippians, but to make much of God, the God of glory. And where is the glory of our relational God who is perfectly holy and who selflessly saves sinners, supremely demonstrated until Christ returns? It is shown in the church. We see the glory of God in a church that loves like God. It's shown in healthy churches where love and knowledge and discernment grow and righteousness fills our hearts and our actions. Now this morning you might say, what in the world is the glory of God? Glory is not an easy word to define. If I gave you a banana this morning and you didn't know the word banana and I handed it to you and I said, hey, that's a banana. You could take it and open it Figure out that you could eat it, and very quickly you could go to someone else and say, let me define banana for you. It's yellow, at least it should be. The green ones aren't good yet. You can open it up, and you can eat it, and it is the best fruit that God ever made. It's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's handy. You can throw it in your bag. It's awesome. But what is Glory. How would we define glory? And not just any glory, the glory of the uncreated ruler of the universe who always is and always will be. I don't know how to define it, but I'm going I'm to try. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His holiness. No, full of his what? His glory. So in some way, God's glory is connected with his holiness, with his purity, with the fact that he is God and there's one God and there's nothing else that is God. And I love what John Piper says here. He writes this, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. There's nothing as beautiful as God. There's nothing uh, as independent as as God. There's nothing as powerful as God. It is the going public of God's holiness. It is the way that he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. And where has he chosen to put his glory on display? But in us, as we love one another as Christ first loved us. The church is to be the people and the place in this broken world where the glory of God is displayed. Have you thought about the church in that way? In Ephesians 3.20, what does Paul say? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. God has called us to himself for his glory. I want to make sure we, we grab that this morning. Our shared lives together 
are to be a greater display of the glory of God than the Grand Canyon ever will be. Man, I'm going to go out in a deer stand where I can know God. Better than in the church? No way. Think on that. We, we are to be the place where God's glory is displayed more than an Alaskan cruise or a dazzling meteor shower. When we live in abounding and sacrificial love, and that love is wedded to truth, that leads us to be united and mutually selfless in advancing the gospel and glorifying King Jesus, God gets the glory. The only explanation for such a dynamic among fallen sinners is what? The overriding power and the overwhelming love of a glorious God who first loved us. Paul is, by the way, just praying what Jesus promised in John 15, 8, right? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we live in this way, God's glory will be displayed and He will also be praised. It's not only to the glory of God, but to the praise of God. To praise someone is to, to commend someone or to celebrate someone. And this praise that we are to offer God now and forevermore as the world sees us living in a way that can only be explained by God. We keep praising God as we keep loving God. This morning, we do so knowing that somehow, some way, the God who first loved us and compels us to love one another will draw still more to His love, that they too might glorify God and join in the everlasting praise of God. So as our worship team comes, my prayer this morning is that the God of glory would be praised because love, knowledge, and discernment are abounding among North Roanoke Baptist church. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would help us to pray like this. God, that we would be a blameless people and a pure people. God, that we would love not from mixed motives, but as Christ loved us. And God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the relationships around us. God, that you would make us open to, to confession and forgiveness and restoration. God, that, that there would not be a root of bitterness that would take root in our hearts that would prevent us from enjoying the life in God that you've called us to. And God, we ask this morning, thinking of, of marriages and, and all kinds of other relationships in your church, God, that you would blow in this place in such a way that you would break down our selfish pride and you would lead us to love like you first loved us, and that it would truly redound to the glory and the praise of God forevermore. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.